Close if you would. And testing one, two, there we go. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10. And just as last week we had a long section in the Gospel of John, we started uh, in chapter 7 actually and went all the way through chapter 10. Now we start in Luke chapter 10 and go all the way through Luke chapter 13, not quite to the end of the chapter there, but again a longer narrative here and and uh, we're going to see some repetition of things and some people as they go through trying to uh, put these events in order, uh, they will take things where Jesus will say the same thing or basically the same thing very close and they'll say, oh, that had to happen at, the one, at one time. Let me ask you something. Have you ever repeated yourself? Uh, I've repeated sermons here. Often, maybe you don't remember them, but I do, uh, and the not every Sunday or anything like that, but uh, there are some sermons that I think are worth repeating. As one preacher said, if it wasn't worth preaching twice, it probably wasn't worth preaching once, amen? And uh, in 20 years, we've tried to cover uh, vast portions of the scripture and have, but there have been some repeats, and Jesus did exactly the same thing as we'll see here tonight. But we start in verse 1 of Luke chapter 10. Remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's just finished the Feast of the Tabernacles. That's in the fall. And the events that we're going to be talking about are going to take on from about the middle of October up toward December when the Feast of Dedication, uh, as referred to in the Scriptures, uh, most likely uh, what we would uh, now call today Hanukkah, uh, the, the dedication of the temple, that would have been somewhere in December. And then, once we get there, it's another four months, and we're in April, and it will be Passover week the last Passover of Jesus' ministry. And so the clock is ticking down as we are going through the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And of course, we're not going to be able to cover every verse here. What we're trying to do is set the scope and sequence. But this is what we call the sending of the 70. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whether he himself would come. Now, I just want you to think about this. We have 35 traveling groups of two preachers in each group. Now, on Saturday morning, we'll have visitation. Sometimes we'll have 10 or 15. There's been a few where we've had over 20 people uh, show up, and, and it's always wonderful when we have big groups show up and we divide, divide them up in threes and fours and, and put them on both sides of the streets. But we get some conflict just trying to cover our neighborhood. Could you imagine 35 traveling teams going through the land of Israel, uh, I mean the entire land of Israel, 
the area that Jesus spent his ministry in, probably about 70 miles north to south and not, not over 20 miles wide. 35 traveling teams. They're all going different places. And Jesus is going to go every place all of those do. I mean, that boggles my mind. How about you? How many of you don't feel so busy anymore? Uh, you stop and you think about this. And this gives us just a little insight as to why John would say at the end of his epistle that if all the books should be written about everything that Jesus did, the world itself could not contain all the books that should be written. Jesus did some miraculous things in just his plain teaching. And that brings us back to another point, that what we have in these four Gospels is summary at best. This is not a detailed blow-for-blow, minute-for-minute scheduling of Jesus' earthly ministry. We are just getting four stories told by four different men recounting the events. And Luke, as he recounts what is being told to him, he was an historian, basically. That meant he was not a partaker of the events themselves. He was not an eyewitness But he's going around and he is thoroughly researching and talking to all the people that were there. And as he's talking to them, he's saying, now wait a minute, Jesus sent out 35 people and he's going to, 35 teams, 70 preachers, and he is going to go everywhere that they all went. That in itself is miraculous. Amen. And so... We have Jesus setting them out, and therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Have you heard that before? How many people know where that is found? Matthew chapter 9. In fact, it's here in your outline. It's a repeat of Matthew chapter 9, verses 26 through uh, 38 there. Uh, It could not possibly be the same time, but it's the same basic words. And the need has not gotten any less greater today than it was when Jesus first uttered them. There are certain things that bear repetition. Amen? And so... Jesus now gives them the rules for traveling. He says, go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Is that not comforting? What happens when lambs travel among wolves? Breakfast, lunch, and supper. And possibly midnight snack. I mean, the wolves get the better of the deal when lambs travel among wolves. Amen? And yet, how much church history has been written about 
the Pope sitting upon his throne, ordering armies to destroy nations and people groups. Does that sound like lambs traveling among wolves? And by the way, the Protestants did the same thing. Martin Luther, the reason he lived was because he lived under the protectorate of the elector of Hanover and his army. The Pope was afraid to attack the army that protected Martin Luther. Now, if you don't see an incredible contrast here, and this begs the question, if Jesus sent his preachers out as lambs among wolves, and these other churches actually travel as wolves among lambs, uh, maybe they're not the same church. Maybe they're just not part of Jesus' church. Because Jesus has not told his people to attack. Never once has he ordered conversion by the sword. And so when a church results to these kinds of things in persecution of other churches, maybe... It's just not Jesus' church. Now, here's how he instructed them to go. Carry neither purse, no money, nor script. Now, a purse and a script are basically the same thing, and so most people believe the purse was for carrying money, the script was for carrying food, nor shoes. Now, You say, wait a minute, they're not supposed to wear shoes? Wait a minute, it says, carry not. How many ladies do you carry your shoes in a bag and wear your sneakers on the subway or whatever till you get to work and then you change your shoes? This is what he's saying. You're not to carry anything extra. What you wear is what you have. No provision, nothing to fall back on. It says, and salute no man by the way. Now, what was that about? Saluting was greeting. Well, what happens when you greet somebody by the way? Do you remember there were two disciples of John's, and John turned around and said, Behold the Lamb of God, and they followed Jesus, and Jesus turned around and said, What do you seek? And uh, they said, We're going to follow you, and he said, Come to my house. That meant he was going to feed them. You see, there was no solicitation. They weren't supposed to talk to anyone and put someone under obligation to take care of them. They were supposed to travel completely free. And when they got to a town, it says, In whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn again to you. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire, 
go not from house to house, and into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Now, it's interesting how strict Jesus was in the requirements. He says, when you go into a village, the first house you go into, say, peace be unto you. If they receive you, you stay there. You eat what is set before you. You know, it would be real tempting to go around, looking around, saying, wow, who's got the biggest house in town? Uh, uh, who makes the best biscuits in town? We'll, we'll just show up there and visit first, right? Uh, Jesus said, none of that stuff. What you do is you take what you get and you don't go from house to house. Every time I read that, I think of back when I was traveling with Brother Clayton. And uh, we were in a certain church in uh, way out in the Midwest somewhere. And I will tell you, every night we ate at a different house. I think I gained five pounds that week. I, of course, I needed it. I was very skinny, just out of Bible college and all of those things. Only half the man I am today. No, I'm not quite. But there was a thing here. He said, travel not from house to house. Stay in one place. Keep it simple. Now, before we move on, Jesus is going to tell his disciples at the very end, do you remember when I sent you out like this? Don't do it again. Take your script, take your purse, take your coat. If you don't have a sword, buy one. Now, what was the difference? Jesus was teaching his disciples something. He was teaching them, number one, not to use the ministry as a means of gain. There are many who are preachers, who claim to pastor churches, who travel. Uh, I praise God we have met very few of them in our little time here in New York City. But they use the ministry as a means of personal gain. I mean, if you show up at 25 houses and only get five bucks a house, you're doing better than the beggars do on the subways. And some of them do pretty well, my friend. In fact, in the Middle Ages, there were some people that figured this out and they built entire monastic orders called the begging friars and built great big palaces and the largest libraries in Europe begging money from people. In fact, it got so bad that the Pope began to realize that when one of these guys died, this huge inheritance was going to his wife and kids and so he stopped the priest from marrying so the inheritance of the beggars would stay in the church. Do you see how ridiculous that is? And you go all over Europe. 
some of the most incredible buildings in Europe were built by the beggars in the dark ages when everybody was supposed to be starving and doing without. Jesus said, that's not the way my ministers work. And the other thing that he was doing was he was teaching his disciples There is an important issue to the gospel that is often overlooked today. Will people receive the message? Don't waste your time taking the message to those people who have already rejected it. You know, I in when I was a young preacher, I we didn't have very many people coming to church, and if anybody would talk to me, I'd talk to them. And I'd spend lots of time on the street corner arguing with the Jehovah's Witnesses and different things like that. You know what? The Lord convicted me about that. They've already rejected. Now, if somebody knocked on the door and said, listen, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, but I, I want to know what the Bible says, I said, my time is yours. We'll take whatever time. But I don't go find the Jehovah's Witness on the street and try to engage them in conversation anymore because Jesus said right here, if they receive you, preach to them. You know what? We will not get the gospel to every person in New York City before Jesus comes back. Let's spend our time wisely. Jesus was teaching these things to the disciples. And far be it from us to start acting like wolves and hunting the other teachers and trying to undercut them and engage. I met a guy one time. He said, my job is to scare Catholics. I said, my goodness. I didn't say my goodness. That's a another subject we won't go into that I just said that's ridiculous I said the last time I checked I thought God wanted us to witness to people if they don't hear the witness we go find somebody else to witness to and believe me before you stop finding people to try to witness to Jesus will be coming back amen so let's be about our father's business he is teaching them you do not make gain of the ministry. There are things that you can do if you want to to enrich yourself in the ministry. He said, don't start it. You know, I know churches where you walk in and you can buy telephone service that helps the church and uh, uh, they get kickbacks on the cable. I don't know how in the world a church could offer cable TV and call itself a church. But... Uh, you have all these companies out there, your mortgage out there. The, we've had mortgage companies call us and say, listen, if you let us come and give a seminar, we'll give you 5% on any mortgages. I mean, lots and lots of money out there. We don't merchandise people here. That's not what church is about. But I want to warn you one other thing. When we were traveling 
in February, we had the privilege of driving the whole way out to California and back, and we got to see the Grand Canyon on the way out there. And coming out of the Grand Canyon, we figured, well, we'll just stop here and see if we can get some dinner. And uh, went into the McDonald's, and I ordered off the dollar menu, and he said, that'll be $55. And I said, what? He said, well, we don't have a dollar menu. I said, well, you don't have my business either. And so turned around and just walked out and, and got accosted by this group of people who were begging. They saw the church van, and they said, God told us to go like this. And it was a woman who was in charge of the group. She was their prophetess. And, of course, she had her minions all around her, both male and female. Uh, none appeared to be married, but all living in somewhat I don't know what. And uh, she just, they said, well, God sent us this way is, uh, without taking anything, and, and we're just going to be traveling by faith. I said, let me, let me tell you something. If it's not written down in this book, it's not faith. Then the prophetess began to curse me. And so we know where that comes from now, don't we? You see, the devil is always imitating. Life is hard enough. Don't try to make it harder pretending to be spiritual because it's just plain stupid. Amen? You see, when God wants you to do something, He'll do it through His church. And just because it's written down doesn't mean that's the way to holiness. God was trying to instruct His disciples and give them what they would need for the ministry. They were to preach, and they were to heal. And they returned to Jesus. And, well, let's, let's finish this verse 11 here. Even the very dust of your city, verse 10, I'm sorry, but into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh you. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And Jesus begins to upbraid several of the cities that he has done his greatest works in, and he finishes here in verse 16, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. Verse 17, And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now look what they're excited about. We did all these great works through your name. But what does Jesus do? And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing by any means shall hurt you. 
Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus immediately takes their attention off of the externals and said, if you want to rejoice about something, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. If you want a one-way ticket to destroying your relationship with God, get over your salvation. Start looking for something bigger. Get to the point to where it's not important that Jesus forgave you. Why do you think it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? God wants to keep us focused on His forgiveness. And the issue of salvation is forgiveness for our sins. Amen? Then we get to use our life to serve Him. That's secondary. That is the natural fruit of our salvation relationship. And then Jesus in verse 21 says, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. So as Jesus is teaching here, the 70 come back. Apparently several weeks have passed. As they have gone out, Jesus has followed them. They then come back and Jesus puts their attention and he says, what you have is something that everybody in the Bible desired to know about. You see, how many of you remember the story of King Saul? He disobeyed God. What did God do? God removed the presence of his Holy Spirit. Now, somebody said, well, I believe Saul lost his salvation. I don't because the day before Saul died, Samuel said, you and your sons are going to be with me tomorrow. Somebody, well, he's only talking about death. Well, wait a minute. Samuel didn't make any differentiation. Jonathan was a righteous man, was he not? We knew about his life. And so... Saul did not lose his salvation, but he certainly lost the blessings of it. And David, when he prayed his great psalm of repentance in Psalms 51, said, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He said, Don't do to me what happened to Saul. But he said to us, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee said that the Holy Spirit of God is the earnest of our salvation, that the indwelling of the Spirit seals us 
until the day we get to heaven. Somebody says, I need more of the Spirit. No, you got all the Holy Spirit of God you're going to get the moment you got saved. The Holy Spirit needs more of you. That's what needs to happen. And again, let's not look to the phenomenon. Let's not look to the externals. Let's keep our hearts focused on the Word of God. Amen? That's what it is all about. David wanted to know about these things. Isaiah wanted to know. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of these men wanted to know what the disciples were living. Don't ever forget how precious what we have is. And so let's continue on. Verse 25. Now Jesus is going to be attacked everywhere he goes and in everything that he does. And Luke is going to record the next several chapters are just going to be about this. And we're going to try to get through uh, all the way through chapter 13 and verse 17 if we can. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up, tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So here we have a lawyer as Jesus is teaching, and he draws attention to himself, and he just simply asks a question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, is that not a great question? That's a question every person ought to ask. But why was he asking the question? It says that he was tempting Jesus. It wasn't because he thought he was lost and wanted to have salvation. It was because he was hoping that Jesus would say something that he could accuse Jesus of wrongdoing or wrong belief. And so Jesus turns the table back on him and said, what do you read in the Scriptures? Now apparently this guy was not just a self-righteous ignoramus. He did not answer, keep the Ten Commandments. Go to synagogue every Saturday. Pray three times every day. Fast twice a week. These were just standard rules that the Pharisees lived by. He said, what do you read? Look what his answer was. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. It's going to be interesting that Jesus is going to repeat these very same words and say on these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets during the last week, the Passover week. And so, this guy gave the right answer. And he said, Jesus, verse 28, Thou hast answered right, this do and thou shalt live. He says, you can have eternal life if you'll do this. But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, don't you think Jesus was just waiting for this question? I mean, he knew it was coming. Amen? 
because he knew this man was only interested in trying to accuse Jesus. By the way, you can't love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might and your neighbor as yourself without some help. That is the result of a relationship with God, not what you do to earn one. And so Jesus gives one of the most famous stories in the Bible. The Good Samaritan. Boy, I've heard this story used and abused. How about you? But the simple truth of the matter was, who helped the guy that needed the help? Well, the Samaritan did. Did he have to help that man? Of course not. The only obligation he was under was human care, one for another. Wonder where that came from. What makes one human being care about another? What makes you feel bad when you can't do what you would like to do to help someone else? That's part of the Holy Spirit of God's work in the human soul. Don't you believe that? Even unsafe people care about other people, and even they feel guilty when they do cruel and hurtful things. That's the Holy Spirit of God working. And what Jesus was doing was he's saying, you have no work of God at all in you because you don't care. Now, our care for another human being is according to the Bible, amen? Our first concern is to the gospel. But if giving someone some food will help them listen to the gospel, well, then let's do that, amen? But more often than not around here, the beggars are richer than the people they're begging from. I don't want that. I just want money. Not for me. I don't have any to give. You see, we need to do what God puts in front of us to do. Story of the Good Samaritan. If there's somebody that you can talk to and care about, do it. If you can't, let God take care of that. And if they don't want help, well, let's go back over to what Jesus was trying to teach the 70. Don't give it to them. I don't want to help a homeless man be a better homeless man. I'd like to help him out of the scenario of the cycle of destruction that keeps him there. Amen? I don't want to help a drug addict. How many of you know how the drug addicts work? When you run out of money for, for uh, heroin, you go on methadone at the government treatment center until you can save up enough money to go back and start buying the real stuff on the street again. That's the way it works. And if you don't believe me, ask some of the other people here. I, it, it, it happens. What we need to do. Somebody said, what's your recovery program? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Thursday night, when you get along a little further, visitation, 
men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning, ladies' fellowship once a month, family fun nights. By the time you get everything in, your schedule's pretty full, amen? And so that's what God is teaching us here. Then we meet two interesting people in verse 38. Just four or five verses here. One, two, three, four, five. It says, Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about, much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Now, I love the story of Mary and Martha. Martha received him into her house. Not Mary, Martha was really, I mean, as we see this story, Martha was, uh, as we might say, large and in charge. Uh, We don't hear much about Lazarus except that he was Jesus' friend and he got sick. Uh, Mary is always on the side, but I mean, Martha's the one that is getting things done. You know what? Jesus wasn't upset because she was getting things done. He was upset because he wasn't first. You know what? Later on, just before Jesus rides the donkey through the eastern gate, they're going to be in Bethany at someone else's house. Apparently, the group was too large for their house. And Martha's going to be serving, but she's not complaining because I think she got that thing straightened out. Uh, I'm not one of those ones that jumps on the bandwagon to condemn old Martha for being so hard-hearted. You know what? Somebody does have to cook the food. But let's remember something. Just like the disciples came back from the 70, Lord, look at all that happened! Jesus said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in the Word of God. Mary was rejoicing in the Word of God. Jesus said, Martha, get the Word first, and then the rest of it's going to fall into place. And you know what? There just may be some things that don't get done. But get the important things done first. Amen? And so then we come on to Luke chapter 11. And Jesus is, again, just passing from town into town. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he had ceased, one of his disciples said unto them, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As in heaven, so in earth. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, how many of you stuttered as I read those words? 
because you had learned another version of that thing. That thing that is called the Lord's Prayer is found nowhere in your Bible, word for word, as you were taught it. In fact, nobody knows where that came from. They think some monk or some guy in the Middle Ages wrote it out and synthesized Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter uh, 11 and, and put his own way in there. Don't accept that. Stick with the Bible. And by the way, if you are of the mind that you're praying just because you repeat the Lord's Prayer, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. This is a pattern. These are things that you ought to pray for. You ever wonder why you're tempted so much? Did you happen to think to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? You know what? God is never going to lead you into temptation. But God said to pray that you don't go there. Sometimes just praying to God and asking Him. How many times in your life have you just felt like you were attacked? I mean, the whole roof fell in on your head. Did you happen to remember deliver us from evil that day when you prayed? You know, sometimes we don't have what we need because we didn't ask. I mean, one thing you always ask for, give us this day our daily bread. We, we pray before we eat. Uh, maybe that's why we all need to go on a diet. Amen? I don't know. But uh, the simple truth is God answers prayer. Pray about these things. Pray that God would use us to glorify Himself. Pray for the things that we need today. Not next month or next year. And then Jesus gives two parables here. The importune friend shows up. Everybody's in bed. Lights are out. Hey, I know you have some bread in there. I need some. He says, you're not going to give him bread because he's his friend. They're not that good of friends. But because he won't go home without the bread, he's going to get some. Don't you just hate people like that? Jesus said, would you get serious about your prayers? It would be an embarrassment. You, we don't know this today because we live in New York City. If somebody shows up at 2 o'clock in the morning, oh, I'll tell you what, let's just go down to the diner. Open 24-7. Uh, you can feed some, but in those days, you didn't feed someone who came to your home. It was an insult. It was a reproach upon your character. When is the last time you needed God to answer a prayer to maintain what would be considered normal and right living? That's what was going on here. Get serious. God wants to answer prayer. But he wants to answer serious prayer. 
Say, I'm going to get serious about praying for a new Cadillac. Forget it. That's not what God's talking about. He's talking about things that you need in the course of every day. I hope you're praying. And one of the things that we've got to do, one of the men in the church was talking with me this week and said, Pastor, I hate to say this, but it's been a long time since we've had an all-night prayer meeting. I said, you know what? I said, you're right. we got to do that. Especially as I think about the Newburgers starting in Greenpoint. We've got to get serious. God wants to answer prayers. We don't tell God what we want Him to do. But he says, bring our prayers before him in a serious asking and expecting mentality. This man knew where he could get bread. And he kept asking until he got it. We know where the answers are, amen? And God wants us to pray. And we come here and Jesus gives the next story here. He says, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will you give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? Or if he ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And again, we go back. Is he giving you more Holy Spirit? Or, in essence, are you surrendering yourself more to the work of the Holy Spirit that's already there waiting to work? Amen? God wants to do things. He only wants what's best. We're not smart enough to even know what's best. That's why the Holy Spirit has to pray for us. That's Romans chapter 8. Jesus was teaching on prayer. And so often, verse 13 is a very, very convicting verse if you read it correctly. You know how to do good to other people. You know how to take care of your own children if if you have children. Why do we expect and treat God as if He were not as caring and as concerned as a parent would be for his child when we have so many problems and he is God. Amen? It is interesting to me in our day and time we are, uh, as a preacher I read books and different things occasionally and it always says you got to be careful you don't preach over people's heads and uh, you can't be too too thorough in your doctrine because if you spend too much time on doctrine, people won't listen. How much doctrine have we covered in the teaching of Jesus right here tonight? I mean, the level of intensity of his teaching was about as intense as you would ever like it to be. Just straight, plain doctrine. This is what we believe. This is how we live. That's what we need today. I didn't give you anything new tonight. We've all read these verses. But I'll tell you what, 
I enjoy teaching them because I need the encouragement and the admonition that is there. And we need to be reminded of these things. Everything Jesus did was with a purpose. And what we're doing tonight is with a purpose. It's to help us be obedient to the Word of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this night. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace, your love to us. And ask now that you would give us grace to read these passages, to think on these words, and to listen, that we may simply be obedient to them. As we take a moment here, Lord, I pray that we would be listening, that you would make our hearts tender toward the leading of the Holy Spirit of God, that we may be convicted of that which we're not doing right or enough or carefully enough. And Lord, that you would help us to just simply love you and your word through simple obedience. Before we finish that prayer, we'll just have the piano play. If you need to come, the altar...